throughout the month of February, we have been thinking about and looking at many of the promises of God, the promises that we base our faith on, promises that we base our life on, and uh, today we're looking at maybe the most important promise that God gives us, the promise of eternal life. We're going to be looking at the familiar verses, two familiar verses from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is found on page 864 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along with me. But before we read that, I invite you to bow your heads and join me in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we come to you now with open hearts, hopeful to hear your word. We pray by the grace of your spirit that the words we hear and the thoughts of our minds and hearts will lead us to your will for all of us as your church and for each of us as your children. Dear God, we love you. And we thank you for your love. Amen. So again, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. One of my favorite little parables about heaven is one that I read in a book by Jimmy Carter many years ago. I'm not sure where he heard it, but it's the story of a man and his dog who found themselves, they had passed away, and they found themselves walking on a road heading up to the pearly gates to get to heaven. As they were walking along, they finally got to the gates of heaven. They saw the big, beautiful, golden uh, gate and the, the pearls all along the gate. They could tell this was heaven after all. And so the man knocked on the door and someone answered. And man, sure enough, at the door answered, yes, this is heaven and you can come in. But unfortunately, your dog has to stay outside. Well, the man loved his dog. And so the man decided he didn't want to go in quite just yet. And so they kept walking along. And as they walked, it was hot on that road, and they walked along further and further, and finally saw a big farm up on the hill, and the gate to the farm was open, and so he and the dog walked on in just to try to find a little drink of water. And they went and knocked on the door and asked for water, and the man there opened the door and said, sure, come on in, gave him a glass of water and gave a bowl of water for his dog as well. And the man asked him, where is this place? And he said, well, this is heaven. I'm St. Peter. The man said, wait a minute, we just passed the gates of heaven not too far back. It, it even said heaven on the door. And how is this heaven? St. Peter smiled and said, oh no, that's not heaven, that's the other place. We just let everybody think that's heaven so that it'll filter out those people who would leave their best friends behind. <laughs> now I'll tell you, I've had some trouble with my dog this week, so I'm not sure how I feel about that parable. <laughs> But that little parable not only tells us how much we love our little puppy dogs, but also sparks our imagination of what heaven might be like. A place with pearly gates, a place maybe with a big beautiful farm, or just a place that God promises us, everlasting life. 
Sometimes we wonder about heaven. Sometimes we worry about heaven. And if, if you're in those shoes where you wonder or worry about heaven, you're not alone. Because there are people all throughout Scripture who had questions about what life after death would be like. That eternal life that God promises to us. You can think of probably several different passages where Jesus himself talks about eternal life. When they're hanging there on the cross and Jesus looks at the other criminal and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Or... At another time when he's talking to his disciples, telling them that he's about to die, and he tells them all about that big mansion where God has many rooms and he's going to prepare a place there for all of us so that where Jesus is, we can be also. Even the Apostle Paul in many of his letters talks about heaven, talks about the mystery of heaven. And in the book of Corinthians, he says, I will tell you a mystery. that We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We will, this mortal body, take on immortality, that promise of God. Or even to the, the Thessalonians in the, the city of Thessalonica, he says something similar. He says, I don't want you to worry about those people who have died so that you may not grieve like people who have no hope. And he goes on to explain that those people who have died on the last days will be called up into heaven with us so that we will be with God together. The promise of heaven is all throughout scriptures. The promise of eternal life is, is all throughout scriptures, including the passage that we just read this morning, that very familiar passage of John 3.16, reminding us that because God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that we might have everlasting life. Those little verses actually are in the midst of a longer conversation that Jesus is having with a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And Nicodemus was having some of those same questions about who Jesus was and what this whole discipleship was about. And, and in the midst of that, Jesus tells him some things that are kind of confusing, in fact, especially confusing to some of us Presbyterians who don't use this kind of language. But he, he tells Nicodemus that discipleship is about being born again. And it worries and even confuses Nicodemus and the, the disciples. And in the midst of all that, though, he says those hopeful words. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that we might have everlasting life. And its most purest form, that is what the promise of everlasting life is for us. It's a gift of hope. A gift of hope in the midst of the pain and the suffering and all the things in this world that overwhelm us. It's a gift of hope that there is something greater, something better. Even Paul talks about it in the book of Romans. He says, uh, the, the sufferings of this time do not even compare to the glory that's on its way, to the glory we're about to receive. That at its purest form is what this promise is all about, to give us hope when our lives are overwhelming, to give us hope when we can't see the road ahead, to give us hope that God is in control and God has already taken care of the end of the story. Maybe one of the best examples of this in our own life, that hope that we base our life on, comes from none other than Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself. We've talked about him a lot as we've been talking about these promises of God. But there's an old story about him. You remember Bonhoeffer. We've talked about him before. He was that German theologian who went back to Germany to fight the Nazis, even though he had the opportunity to escape and leave them behind. And He was thrown into a prison camp there in Germany and, and waited for his own execution. But while he was there in that camp. His friends watched him and were amazed at this sense of peace 
Even the sense of happiness he had while he was working there in that prison camp. He would have little church services together there in that prison camp and and share others and encourage others who were feeling the despair. And he came to just exude this happiness and this hospitality. One of his friends, a man named Payne Best, wrote a little story about the last days of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that camp where they were sitting around a table sharing little Bible stories and then they heard that familiar knock at the door. It was the German officers who came in and threw the door open and said, you, Bonhoeffer, come with me. And they knew what that meant. That meant this was his time. He was being taken away and would soon be killed. But To look on Bonhoeffer's face, Best said, he seemed fine. In fact, as he left, he slipped a little piece of paper in my hand and I opened it up and read it and it said, this is the end. But for me, it's the beginning. That's what eternal life, that promise of eternal life is all about. That in those moments when the weight of the world is on our shoulders, we still have hope that God knows the end of the story, that God has taken care of us, that God has a plan for us, and that we can put our faith and trust in that every single day. Yet I dare say, as Christians, maybe even me myself from time to time, we have taken that promise of eternal life and used it, maybe even cheapened it so that it has cheapened our faith and cheapened our lives. We think about eternal life that lasts forever, this life where the glory is greater than anything we've experienced, and we compare it to this life, this life that's finite, this life that's painful at times, and it tends to make us believe that this life doesn't matter quite so much. It tends to make us believe that this life, and you maybe even heard this in other churches before, that this life is just a waiting room, a waiting area for that life to come. And yet if we read the gospel, we know that there's nothing further from the truth. The promise of eternal life is not meant to cheapen this life here and now. In fact, I would say quite the opposite. That this life, because it's fragile, because it's finite, because it's fleeting, is also precious. That God created us with a purpose and a plan in mind. And that if we threw this life away, we would be throwing away a gift. Well, the gift of the present for the gift of the future. And I'm sure you've experienced that in your own life. Moments in your own life where this life is rich and full and overflowing with God's blessings and God's love. And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God intended for us to live this day, to live this life with a purpose and a plan. One of the greatest examples of this comes from a dear friend of mine back in Roswell, another preacher who I went to seminary with named Lindsay Slocum. Lindsay is a, is a, a friend of mine who has two young boys, Brandon and, and uh, well, now her, her other son is escaping me right now, but Brandon is the, the key to the story. He was in his room and he was... Uh, a, a, Decide, they were deciding they were going to change some of the furniture in Brandon's room. And so uh, they took, the, uh, they took his, his bookshelf out because they were going to buy him a whole new bookshelf. And as she was cleaning off that bookshelf, she found a little tiny note that slid out from between the books. She opened up the little note and read it. It was just a funny little note that said, Dear Brandon, I love you. I can't wait to see you again. By the way, Mr. Brayer is sleeping. Don't wake him up. 
Love, Grandmother Slocum. It was a funny little note with a funny little joke, but it wasn't as funny to her when she found it. She realized that Grandmother must have written this many years earlier because at the time that she found it, Grandmother was fighting off early-onset Alzheimer's. That She couldn't have written this note recently. In fact, those words that she read on that, that note were words that she cherished so deeply because she knew those were words that that grandmother couldn't find now. She probably couldn't have shared those words with Brandon or Drew, her other son. <laughs> she couldn't find those words. She couldn't find those words now. And so she was grappling on to that little piece of paper and reading it again and again and again, remembering who that formidable woman was. That formidable woman who taught them about love, who taught them about patience, who taught them about kindness. That formidable woman who started their family. And that little sheet of paper that other people might have just thrown away, she held on to. She held on to that sheet of paper because she knew that they wanted to hold on. Hold on to that woman who they had had to say goodbye to far too many years too early. That's what this life that Jesus Christ gives us is all about. It's a life that we might take for granted on most days if we focus too much on that life to come and don't enjoy and be grateful for the life here and now. It's only in those moments when we realize how fleeting this life is that we also realize how valuable this life is. And if this life is truly valuable, valuable to us and valuable to Jesus Christ, then we should live it with a purpose and a plan. A purpose and a plan that Jesus Christ intends for us. That's where that confusing part comes in that Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about, that born-again part that we don't talk about a lot here in the Presbyterian church. What it simply means is, is that we have to live our lives differently if we're going to accept that promise of eternal life. We have to live our lives differently in the footsteps of Jesus Christ because, believe it or not, eternal life requires more than just saying the right words and reciting the Apostles' Creed. Eternal life requires sacrifice and selflessness and giving ourselves and our whole lives to the glory of God. That kind of requirement is something we don't like to talk about. Something hard for us to do. And yet that kind of sacrifice is what eternal life requires. One of my favorite books over the years, maybe my favorite book, is the old novel by Mark Twain, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I first read the book when I was a little child, and back then when I read it, I was really just caught up in the whimsical tale and the, the cuss words that are throughout the book. But as an adult, I've read it again and again and realized there's a lot of deep theology in that book, especially when it comes to questions of eternal life. You know the story, Huckleberry Finn befriends this slave, this runaway slave named Jim. Huckleberry Finn is a, a poor, uneducated young boy living along the banks of the Mississippi River, and 
And Jim is a runaway slave trying to get up the Mississippi River and get himself to freedom. And Huckleberry Finn decides to help Jim. And they go on many adventures together. But all throughout the book, Huckleberry just has this little voice in his head that worries him. It's not the worry that he's going to be caught by police or worry that he's going to get in trouble. No, it's a worry that his Sunday school teachers and his preachers had told him all throughout his life that things like lying and cheating and stealing and and helping runaway slaves was an evil thing to do. He wasn't worried that he was going to get in trouble with the authorities. He was worried that what he was doing was getting him in trouble with God. That God would see him helping this man and banish him to hell. And so in a moment of weakness, after he had seen one of those wanted posters for Jim, he pulled out a little sheet of paper and started writing down a little note to Jim's former slave owner, Miss Watson, writing out a note to explain exactly where Jim was going to be, exactly what time, where she could find him. And he finished that note and signed it Huckleberry Finn. And for a few moments there, he felt like his heart was clean. He felt like he had made right with God. He felt like everything was going to be all right again. But then he started thinking about his friend Jim, about all the adventures they had had, about all the times up and down the river they had had where he had been so kind to Huck, where he had reached out and loved Huck and cared for him almost like his own son. That time when he even looked at Huck and said, you're my best friend, maybe my only friend. And then he looked down at that sheet of paper. For a few moments, he just trembled there. And then he said these words. All right then. I'll go to hell. And he crumbled up the sheet of paper. In a few moments, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed and we're going to remember those words. He was crucified dead and buried, and He descended into hell. Because you see, eternal life, it requires sacrifice. And the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ has provided that sacrifice for each and every one of us. The good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ has provided that sacrifice. And the hope is that if our faith and our trust are in that promise, that it might not just give us hope for the future, but it might change our lives here and now. That we might walk in the footsteps of Jesus. That we might go into the living hells of this world to share the good news of the Gospel. For God so loved the world. That's why this is the greatest promise that God offers us. Because it not only gives us hope for the future, but it gives us hope for the here and now. That you and I might love each other differently. That you and I might treat each other differently. And that this world, for as fleeting and as fragile as it could be, might be a place where we together worship and give thanks to the God who loves us and will not let us go. Thanks be to God. Amen.